Restart. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to your movie reviewing reappraising genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. This week, because Kitty Green's The Assistant, a Me Too era drama about a assistant working in the film industry, is uh, it's it's out in New York and LA. It's slowly rolling out throughout February around the country. But we're here to talk about movies that tackle assistantship as a topic. What else are we doing, Noah? Yes, we're also doing The Devil Wears Prada and Secretary. That's right. The former, of course, well-known Meryl Streep, Anne Hathaway vehicle from 2006. And then Secretary was not a movie I was super familiar with. It was fascinating to read about. It's a 2002 Maggie Gyllenhaal breakout movie with her and James Spader. And, uh, Critically like lauded too, kind of an indie darling. Yeah, it was like a big deal Sundance provocation movie in two thousand two or whatever. It really has like a Soderberghian sort of whatever. I think we've got a bit of a Soderberghian whatever. Um, We're just talking two guys talking on iPhones. That hey, now that we should call this podcast "Low Flying Bird." Um, <laughs> did you like that? I, li- I loved it. He choked his LaCroix, ladies and gentlemen. I, I choked on my own LaCroix laughing at Low Flying Bird. And that will be the only laugh shared between us over the next <laughs> two hours. This is, a, um, I guess two out of three of these movies are quite dark, but it's hard not to pl- apply a darkened lens to all three, perhaps. Um, we're going to talk about Kitty Green's The Assistant first. I'm super happy that uh, Daily Beast writer Cassie DaCosta is going to join us in a little while i got to talk with her about a terrific piece she wrote about the assistant but why don't we start with that movie noah after i tell people hold on gotta say that we're thrilled as always to be on the playlist podcast network with shows like the discourse the fourth wall and indie beat we would love you to give us a kind rating and review wherever you may listen to playlist podcast network shows and uh yeah tell them we sent you pop five stars on it okay the assistant. Let's set this movie up a little bit, talk about it, and then we'll hear from Cassie. Welcome. Have a seat. Whatever's going on, you can tell me. That's what I'm here for. You're relatively new to the company. I mean, I've been working here for nearly two months. And you're under a lot of stress. Entry-level jobs in this industry are tough, right? Long hours? 
First one in, last one out. Good night. You're smart. You have to be smart. It's a tough job, but I can see that you've got what it takes. I want those new pages before I get on the plane. He promised the first thing. Where are we at? 200K and two points. Maybe you can put in a good word for you. No, he'll hire externally. Listen, his schedule has shifted. Does 7 p.m. work? Still at the hotel or? Yes. What? This is turkey. I said chicken. <laughs> There's a girl waiting. Oh, her. She's been here before. A few times. Well, in 2017, two New York Times and one New Yorker reporter broke the Harvey Weinstein scandal, which goes for the core of Hollywood and the way it does business and is now culminating legally in a trial in New York uh, and then, I guess, eventually a trial in Los Angeles around this iconic movie producer who used his position to put himself in situations to attack and prey upon young women uh, and this movie is more or less a day in the life of one of the people sort of aware of what was going on, but powerless to stop it. The Weinstein comparison is is ready-made, but one of the fascinating things about the movie is it's very much through the POV of this assistant Jane, and you never actually see the boss or any of the horrible right. things he's probably doing. And we should clarify, to clarify, this assistant is never attacked herself, nor do I think that that is a spoiler of any kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, were you expecting, I was kind of expecting like a bloody red drama about, you know, assault and finding one's voice. And that's not what this movie is. But what it is is sort of an interesting piece of filmmaking because if you don't have the antagonist on screen and he's only really in like these whispery phone calls and this these sort of like chipped uh sort of clipped emails you uh you wouldn't really know he was there but the dread looming around every corner my god yeah it's like a it's clearly like a don't show the shark approach but instead of like holding off, you never show the shark, and it's a study of how just the undertow of the ocean, the the uh, you know unpinpointable power of something very evil is underneath everything. And I think it requires some pretty miraculous performances to pull off everybody reacting to someone who's not actually there. True, because um, everybody has a certain way about them, and it's all in relation to this guy mm-hmm. in every capacity, senior level all the way down to the person doing his scheduling. So Julia Garner plays Jane in this movie. You might know her from Martha Marcy May Marlene. She's in the Sin City sequel. She had a recurring part on Ozark. Um, I knew her from Ozark, where she also plays like a pretty tough cookie. Yes. And she is in her own way a tough cookie in this movie. And the way that the job tries to make her tougher is part of the problem. Um, yeah, but it's it's just, it's a very close perspective. Like you, the movie opens on her single lit apartment in Queens. There's no other lights on in the building. You have no idea if it's day or night. And then she climbs in a black car and heads into the city. And that loneliness, that uh, island that she's on, continues throughout the movie. Um, But her performance, 
Like the stoicism is pretty remarkable. And absolutely. And they're like shitty paying high work, high intensity jobs. And yeah, it's the kind of thing where we'll hear someone later describe Miranda Priestly as like, if you have that job for a year, you can like write your ticket afterwards. And it's totally true. Like I know a few people who have like not only worked for Weinstein, but have worked for some of these other powerful producers. And it's like, Oh, he threw a stapler at you. Cool. And now you work as like an interesting executive at a production company. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I want to hear more about like your, your view of this world. Cause you're definitely much closer to it than I am as a New York publishing person. You had an interesting text just about this office and the creepy verisimilitude That's what I found of the office. So, yeah, what I found so creepy about the office is how accurate it was. And like having been in there for like two meetings over the past eight years or something, uh, it's not an impressive, it was not like an impressive workspace. It was just like your very minimal cubicles for everybody and like these worn of offices that like lead into smaller offices. But it's not like the, it doesn't look like entourage. It like looks like how it actually looks, which is almost creepier. Like seeing her in that like shitty little kitchen that they have in the office. It doesn't, there's not like a Starbucks fountain just like raining down. Right. It's like this, this assistant making do when in this like 10 watt microwave while other people are throwing dishes in the sink. Yeah. I mean, you know, you noted in the text that it's of course not, it's not client facing. So that's a big part of it, but also it just feels like. Right it's almost designed to not let anyone see in. Well, there's so many walls. Yeah. Like it's interesting how this movie also uses walls where characters get like trapped in these little cubby holes and they witness things that they don't mean to, but they also can't see anything clearly, mm-hmm. which I thought was so like even, and it's also like a testament to like working in New York, how it's portrayed in movies as to actually how it is where like every space is so weird. Yes. One of the things I love about this movie and cannot be an accident is the way the emotional reasoning parallels the spatial reasoning. Like, I just thought it was so telling that, you know, her desk is banal but spotless. And then she opens one drawer and stuffed into there is like her very puffy coat and a long scarf. And it's just really weird that like, yeah, you get a metal box to hide the only personal thing that you bring with you in a given day. And then where she actually like puts that stuff on and goes to see Matthew McFadden later in the movie. Um, it's really noticeable. And people were like commenting on her scarf and coat and stuff. Like, it's almost just like, wait, did you bring a little bit of you in here and like, let somebody else see it? Like, that's just, what are you doing? Right. They're almost uncomfortable about it. And the way that they resolve it is by pretending to be overly friendly by like, oh, why don't you take your coat off and stay a while? What they mean is like, you must go back into your place now. Like, what are you doing? You want to talk about the, the cast and the people who pop up in this thing? It is sort of interesting to just be in an elevator briefly, um, with Patrick Wilson. Yeah. And then, yeah, he's just gone. He's not a supporting character in this film. He's just there for a split second for a meeting and then leaves, which I think is an incredible way to populate this movie in a way that feels authentic, where it's just like, oh, there's like a famous actor that I know. Or the fact that uh, Matthew McFadden's in it, too. The guy from uh, uh, Succession. Plays Tom Wamsgamps. Playing a hauntingly similar, though you don't realize it at first, kind of. If this movie has a scene, it's the one with him. There's something about the 
flow of information in the office too that like everyone knows everything but what's been withheld either like purposefully or not is like the correct you know times and places like the whole McFadden scene is driven by the fact where she comes in and she basically sketches the outline of a story of assault but it's just an outline so he's like I'm sorry these just sound like circumstantial details where are the lines between the dots and it's like well everybody knows there's lines between the dots but there's no emails or phone calls about the lines. And so it makes right. up her end up looking foolish and it's heartbreaking when it happens. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, he gaslights her to such an effect that she believes that she's made this thing up in her mind. Right. But can we say, though, if you're looking for a movie where, like, stuff happens, this isn't that movie. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, we should, like... I think it's 87 minutes long and it can't be a second longer. It can't because the first 20 minutes of the movie is just her like collating things and waiting for different boring members of the office to trickle in that, that, but yeah. So, right. We'll explain our rating system a little bit later. Cause I think we, first of all, should refresh people and it, it bears some insight on this episode, but it's a procedural about jobs that were programmed not to care about and so that's like an interesting thing to fight with yourself with as this movie is unfolding because boy is she not on the spotlight investigative team or yeah sort of if you were hoping for like a spiritual sequel to a disclosure or something (laughs) i was not um i think the spirit is the problem with that movie um yeah what it's good for is what i think we should hear from our guest Cassie DaCosta right now. It's good for like a real deep read on the details of a workplace like this. And it's great for picking apart the structures of workplaces that might seem very innocent by comparison to say, you know, Miramax in 2002. Um, But like the problems still exist. So why don't we hear from Cassie? You know, you can always come to us, right? Come to us first, okay? The last two checks don't have a name or anything. Just the dollar amount. Uh, ignore it. Okay, and will he know what it's for? Yep, he'll know. I wouldn't sit there. Never sit on the couch. (laughs) Here and here, initial here, sign there. Do I need a lawyer or something? Do you have a lawyer? Let's start here. Did Kitty Green's storytelling style in this movie catch you by surprise at all? What were you expecting going in? I wasn't particularly familiar with her work beforehand, though I knew that she had done documentary work, especially around feminism and the feminine organization. So I kind of, I got the sense that it wouldn't be um, conventionally narrative or necessarily a softened film. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that, for many people, is a startling part of this kind of film. It doesn't do the work to kind of um, welcome a a viewer into the narrative and make them feel comfortable before kind of disturbing them. But that seems like an apt choice for the story she's out to tell. Discomfort is all over the place. I think so. And I think it it does, it makes it harder um, for people to, or at least I felt it made it harder to distance myself from what was happening. Um, Usually Mm. like kind of a cold or distant 
filmmaking technique can have the effect of giving people that critical distance. But in her film, I felt that it served the purpose of making you feel complicit in it. Because um, you're not allowed to have an intimate relationship with the main character either. And that makes you feel more alienated from the situation. How does that, or do you think that relates to, and I guess what did you make of more broadly, the movie's decision to really kind of mute some critical phone conversations? And then I guess by extension, the biggest bit of withholding would be never meeting the boss. Yeah, it's it, it seems to me, and I can't obviously can't speak for Kitty Green, but the way that functioned, it didn't feel like a protective mode for the boss, but it felt it felt like a way of telling a story that is more than um, the kind of individual grievance or the individual abuse. I think in in the Me Too movement, there's been a huge focus on individual stories, which obviously are important and without which you wouldn't have a movement against sexual violence and abuse in the workplace. However, a lot of the stories that have come from that and the way that the stories are structured are hyper-focused on the individual. And for me... I think that it doesn't challenge anyone to do anything when you take that point of view. So I thought the assistant mm. was really successful in saying that these problems are structural and that they implicate us all. It's also a movie where, as you point out, the the devil is like really in the details mm. in this movie. I mean, small bits of object work and space and, and things about the office that show which ways the power flows and which way it doesn't flow um, are all over the place. Was there a detail, Cassie, that jumped out to you the most in, or that rings the loudest in your memory from this movie? Um, the one that maybe is the most obvious is when she takes... In the piece I wrote that they were insulin injections, so I wonder now if they were referring directly to the Harvey Weinstein situation where he was, like, injecting himself with, like, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction drugs. It's unclear, and I'm not sure. Yeah, but whatever those injections were, when she takes the needles out of the trash and she has those biohazard bags already in her desk ready, it's a routine, and she, she... she carries it out like this very banal kind of second thought act. Just the thought of doing that in, in any position where I, w- where I wasn't some kind of healthcare right. <laughs> no, yeah. um, employee. Yeah, the, the extremity of being asked to do that or not asked, just expected to do that. Right. Um, and then also something that really struck me was the physicality of... of of the Jane character in relationship in relation to everyone else. So when that one or the other assistant who kind of picks on her a little bit, you know, he throws trash at her to get her attention and she turns around and it's kind of like, what? It's like, the, it, that's really the only moment of hostility we see from her, but it's still so contained. And mm-hmm. it was that kind of under undercurrent of rage Um, Mm -hmm. that is so tightly controlled and so kind of built into the fabric of the workplace that really struck me and was really difficult to forget because when she has to deal with her boss berating her on the phone she's using those same muscles um, for herself in and then when you see her talking to her mom on the phone or talking to her dad on the phone later for some reason we see her again using that same demeanor she softens a little bit but she's still on the defensive in a way she's still protecting 
And I think that was the kind of disturbing thing that that, um, that mode gets repeated. It gets carried out into all sorts of situations and interactions. And that, you know, these, sometimes these workplaces can condition people to not react to, um, emergencies <laughs> in a <the> normal way. <laughs> right. Because you brought it up in the piece, Cassie, do you mind, can we talk about your personal experience in a job like this to the extent that you're comfortable? Sure. What part of, um, Jane's experience did you relate to the most working as you talked about you interned for a summer during college at a film production office right mm-hmm. yeah so the office that I was interning at was a lot more um informal in terms of dress I would say which is one major difference but at the same time um it was like a, you know an open plan hyper visible workplace in which the executives were kind of all in their own offices and Um, basically the major need besides sort of random administrative minutiae or doing coverage for films, which just means, you know, reading scripts and and writing responses about whether this film should be made. The main thing was answering phone calls and greeting them all, but basically taking down who um, called and what they wanted and then having a list present, um, for the executive whenever they needed it. And so this sounds kind of simple, but when someone's a film producer, it it, <laughs> it can be a little absurd and strange and not knowing like how detailed or how often to print out the list that you've been typing up so that you can sure. it. So there are just so many moments in the day to basically be, um, to not carry out what felt like should have been a simple task properly and then to be basically berated for it. Um, and I think yeah. in the scheme of things, the place I was working at wasn't even that bad. Um, mm. I did remark that it was, I was like, I could never work in a place like this. It felt, I mean, there's no other word. It felt oppressive. And I, and the, I really admired the assistants who kind of were directly overseeing my work because I thought that they had so much um, fortitude to show up every day and kind of sure. this. They were clearly like so much smarter than the jobs and they kind of had to be so deferential to people who were, who barely noticed them. And at the time, because you know, I went to, I went to Yale, I went to a school that kind of preaches this level of deference to a certain kind of perceived power structure so you kind of learn like, oh, if you can be really competent at this kind of demeaning work in a very personalized mm. workplace, getting like, you know, underpaid, then you're really smart. You're really good. And in the film, when he tells her or, you know, when his driver tells her, you know, your boss talks a lot about you, he, you know, he's so impressed with you and she's kind of taken aback. And the way it affects yeah. her or when her boss says that he kind of believes in her, writes that email to her. And it really, it re- I, those moments I thought were so true to the system um, mm-hmm. that it really is about a form of demeaning. You, you can talk about this professional managerial class um, that, you know, Barbara and John Ehrenreich came up with this idea of, you know, there's this class of professionals that aren't the working class, but who often are in relationship to the working class or the managers or the people who carry down the orders from the corporate, you know, behemoth. Mm-hmm. 
the idea is if you're going to reach this professional class, you kind of, I don't, this story is, is about what happens when there's this gray area between the workers and the managers and that's the assistants, right? Right. Where you see the other personal assistant come in who has to do all the laundry, has to do the more demeaning, degrading work of being yelled at about laundry and taking care of his kids and, um, not to say that work is inherently demeaning, but in this context, I think it would be. And it, it's interesting to see the ways in which the Jane character is also supposed to facilitate that kind of worker oppression for her boss as well. And then a right. weird relationship between those two girls. So I felt like in, in the job that I had, <laughs> to say this in a very long-winded way, um, it was an interesting experience of observing how power gets organized. I mean, you really made me think, Cassie, about like assistantship in a more sort of ontological way. And I, I, I like that you sort of made the, the side note there of like, well, there's not like the work itself is not inherently demeaning, but like the, the way that the implication is. And it made me think about, you know, if your job maybe not in so many words is to turn the banality of somebody else's life invisible to them like you just handle all that shit Mm -hmm. and so i never have to think about it then if there is the implication there has to be now you go be invisible and if i see any of the banality come back then something is wrong and that's just seems like a structure that's so ready for mm, outbursts and abuse yeah and i think also that a lot of that it is in the kind of tedious or banal work um, that a lot of power gets exercised in particular. And if you, and I think I've seen so many conversations about, you know, these women or these marginalized people haven't been able to get to these positions of power, which I think inherently misses the point, which is that there shouldn't be this hierarchical power in relationship to different kinds of work because once you create that system it transforms the work itself what is it like what are the emotional dynamics at play for for you and the office like after a moment of verbal abuse is that what's going on in like in that moment yeah i think it's so normalized that no one that if other people notice or you have like an ally in the office who notices, their reaction will just be to be like, oh, are you okay? But it won't be like, oh, this is fucked up. Right. Um, or it will just be a way to downplay and be like, oh, it's not personal or that kind of thing. And mm. in the, the film really does a good job of showing how, you know, the two other assistants who are both men come to Jane when, you know, she's berated on the phone and, and help her write the apology email that she has to immediately write to her boss after he yells at her. Um, And that is like, at first it almost seems kind of like a form of care, like, oh, they're just trying to help her get through this. Then you realize, oh, it's not that at all. It's really just a form of control Mm -hmm. that they're participating in. Um, If you're already in a workplace that, normalizes abuse you're going to try to minimize it because how are you going to continue to show up to that workplace if you are really taken aback by it every day or if you you let your allow yourself to feel your full emotions 
that's the difficulty. I think, you know, in, in the assistant, it doesn't seem like there's some, there's an easy option. Um, it doesn't, the film doesn't make it seem like it's easy to do the right thing. It doesn't make it feel like it's even possible to do the right thing alone. And I think that's the pot, like the, that the important way the film is structured. It doesn't put all of the power with Jane. It actually shows you that it's very easy to disempower someone like this, it, that her job has been built for that purpose. You let all of these people see the ugly sides of your, the work because if they say anything, it'll be very easy to discredit them. The very eye-catching, striking headline for your piece is it's the hashtag MeToo film that has Hollywood worried. And I, I wondered if, um, if you think this movie does have a chance to change any minds or reawaken the right people to a different reality. I hope so. I, I think I try to be careful about the possibilities of what a film can do on its own. It, it requires a, another series of steps after people watch it and take it in um, to be willing to have discussions um, to be willing to admit their own ignorance. So I think that this film provides an opportunity to look at things in a different way, and it's a starting point for a different kind of conversation, which I think is important, one that's more structurally focused and less focused on the specifics of an individual narrative. Um, but that, that, it's always going to require work. Right. The question is, who's going to do the work? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people have been kind of taken by Joaquin Phoenix winning the BAFTA and making the speech about systemic racism and how he's, you know, he's also a problem. He's been a part, part of the problem. On one hand, it's like, yeah, like, you know, we shouldn't be like running to like congratulate a white person for speaking up, which like doing the baseline right. is good. But also the important thing there is that someone who does have this kind of power in the system went to a room full of other people who have a lot of power in this system and was willing mm-hmm. to say things that wouldn't ingratiate him to them at all. And I think that that's a part of it is more people who are willing to say, I don't know, like I haven't been doing the right thing. I don't really yeah. know. I, what's right more than anyone else does, but I know I can see what's wrong here. Uh, One more uh, question for you, Cassie, and feel free to take a second to think about it. So also on this podcast, we're going to talk about uh, Devil Wears Prada and Secretary. And I was curious if there are any other um, movies that portray assistantship either uh, in line in a perhaps useful way with how you ended up thinking about the assistant or um, completely out of bounds that you might think of as like the polar opposite of what you wrote about in this piece? (laughs) One thing that came to mind, I don't know how I would relate this to the assistant directly, but I was thinking about the intern, the Nancy Myers film. Oh yeah. With Robert De Niro. And it kind of reverses the relationship. It's a younger woman boss and he's gone into retirement, but he's bored. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the film... That film presents a kind of corporate fantasy of what the tech world could be. That's a very Nancy Myers premise. It's very Nancy Myers. It's kind of, it's very fantastical. But I thought that the the truth in that film 
in the relationship is that necessarily an assistant or someone in an assistant or intern like position is going to end up providing an essential role to somebody who is in a position of power in a company. And so if that, those relationships are only going to be have integrity when the person who has the relative position of power can recognize the inherent inequity in the relationship and then do make active changes to um, structurally make that not the case. Right. Sure. And there are a lot of like sort of visual gestures of people trying to be like, all right, I'm going to sit on the floor with my employees and all of these things that actually don't get to the face of, of, they don't get to the substance of what that inequity is. Um, and I'd be, I would hope that we can, I would love to see an assistant boss film that was really, that really got down to, um, economics in a direct way. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't just use them as a kind of aesthetic to d- demonstrate the inequity. Because the interesting thing about the Nancy Myers film, about the intern, is that both of them are financially secure. So that right. that that creates a completely different relationship between them. Totally. And the thing that was remarkable for me in the movie is seeing how the other uh, workers at this place, like the the one who moves for the job and can't find an apartment in New York, how they're not able to be as good of workers or the implication is that they're not as able to be as good as workers because their lives are in such disarray and because Mm -hmm. society has fundamentally changed and the Robert De Niro character is able to kind of ace the job but because he's supported by this uh, by a system that no longer exists for for anyone else right yeah I love the way in your piece, honestly, it was such a small thing, but you were just like these $20,000 a year, like Manhattan jobs. Cause putting a number on it, which is something that, you know, so much of like workplace culture is like, just doesn't want to do. It almost seems like gauche because of the way it's done, but putting a number on it is like, yeah, this is, this is stupid. It's not doable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I think that's the last thing that people really ever want to talk about. And I think sure. it's a very kind of, use a dated term, bourgeois idea of what like work is about. It's like you're there to make money. So, <laughs> yeah. But I think for like you know the professional class of which I'm part, the uh, the goal even more than money is 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 about clout and status. You're yeah. willing to undergo, you should be, or you're told you should be willing to go any number of kind of indignities on the way to that status. Um, right. And what, the more you obscure economics, the easier it is to tell that kind of lie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Cassie, thank you so much for your time and insights here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Of course. Thank you, Chance. It was great to talk to you, too. Do you have anything specific uh, you want to plug for the audience? You're obviously writing on the Daily Beast all the time, but uh, anything you want to point them toward? Um, you should read Another Gaze, which is the uh, the feminist and queer film journal that I edit um, and has really smart, deep thinkers on all sorts of films and ideas, not only around feminism, but around um, politics and, and intellectualism in the film space. So... If you love movies and you love kind of polemical arguments, then that's another place to go as well as the Daily Beast. 
I'm jazzed to take a look myself. Everybody do that. Um, Cassie, thank you again. Thank you. What can we do? Do about what? Thanks, Cassie. Everyone go read that piece. We've got it linked and uh, check out her work. Um, Noah, should we get the rating system clip in here real quick or should we uh, explain how it works? Okay. This is how we rate movies on Be Real. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy, too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician-turned-actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I really think that this is a, in many ways, like an excellent movie. I think that the details stack up in such a well-observed way to the point where, like, I... I'm almost a little mad at myself that it's such an obvious good bad, if that makes sense, that it is of such high technical quality, but like so not rewatchable. Um, so that part's sort of, uh, I don't know, it's almost a given. But uh, I could talk forever about, I'll tell you one detail I absolutely loved is just the, it spends time watching her get a paper cut because it shows the, you know, the little wounds inflicted by the sheer board tedium of her work. But this movie is like 10,000 little paper cuts you can't see. It's like a perfect metaphor. Yeah. I think I may actually give this movie a good good. Because I think without, if I wasn't on that like oppressive 24-hour screener window, I, might have, I may have watched it again. 
yeah to like see what those little moments are and if like what they do add up to um but i think it's also like a perfect metaphor for us as a society like waiting for the smoking gun in a lot of these things and like refusing to acknowledge the little injustices that add up to a more a more like cohesive injustice right by the time this podcast comes out the uh, circumstances will probably be have been forgotten but last week Weinstein's lawyer gave this interview to the New York Times to Megan Toohey, who was one of the two reporters from the Times who broke the story and then wrote a book about it. And she admitted to her that she thinks like a lot of these women, at least the women in the trial itself, have a large role to play in the circumstances that befell them. And it's like horrible that someone would... Just categorical victim blaming. Yeah, just categorical victim blaming and whether she's doing that for money or whether she's doing that for whatever. But the sad part about, I think the sadder part of the interview is that in the preceding 20 minutes, she makes like an interesting rhetorical argument for like how one can sin and abuse one's position in an industry without having committed a criminal act. Mm. Uh, But then to like follow it up with just like patent victim blaming, it's just like, oh no. It is a tiny, it's a thousand little paper cuts here. Yeah. But right. I think to tie this back to what you're saying, it's the things that aren't criminal that are still so insidious and so below the surface that nobody thinks about it because like, that's how you treat quote unquote should treat an assistant or just how assistants get treated. Right. And I mean, and it's so funny to watch these other two movies in that context too, because like only what in 2006 or whatever we were glorifying like how having a shitty boss was like some kind of cool rom-com thing to do right right and there are like ones there are two others with sandra bullock too that are sort of interesting two weeks notice and the proposal yeah that also sort of say that oh having a hard boss just like is supposed to teach you something and then you don't repeat their behavior but you are a better person yes and it doesn't get it like the systematic toxicity that grows in entertainment industries like this so the assistant is quite good, um, but be warned. You can yeah, hear I think good, good. Okay. But yeah, but I can good see you. how you would not want to be like, hey, guys, like it's a Saturday afternoon. It's kind of rainy outside. Let's throw on the assistant. Right. <laughs> the, the, I just think the funny thing about it is that you you can't even like explain what it is without explaining how not entertaining it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's sort of like the reverse way to describe Parasite. It's like, I know that sounds boring, but it's not. Exactly. You're like, like, I know know this this sounds interesting, but it isn't. (laughs) It's not salacious or dramatic. And that's why it's so good. (laughs) That's right. Who's Miranda? She's the editor-in-chief of Runway. Not to mention a pigeon. Work a year for her and you can get a job at any magazine you want. A million girls would kill for this job. Who are you? Uh, my name is Annie Sachs. So you don't read Runway? No. And before today, you had never heard of me? No. You have no style or sense of fashion? Well, I'm not sure. No, no. That wasn't a question. Is that sad? I just have to stick it out for a year. One year. And then I can do what I came to New York to do. So The Devil Wears Prada came out in 2006. It's- My God, did it ever. Yeah, it's definitely like historical fiction, which is so <laughs> sad. Uh, David Frankel is your director. Um, this is definitely 
probably the best movie he's made. Other David Frankel movies include Collateral Beauty, Marley and Me, Hope Springs. Can you even like fathom the time period that was going on when KT Tunstall was still like on the radio? I God. was I was just walking in and out of the AMC at the mall over and over again listening because I remember Black Horse and a Cherry Tree would just be on every Ugh. single Saturday. This movie may on a novel, Lauren Weisberger, uh, a best-selling novel. Do you know this novel? Have you read it? I believe it's a series of novels about this character. Um, I have not read it myself. About Andrea or Andrea? Oh, my God. I want to talk for an hour about Meryl's voice in this movie. Yeah, but adapted by Ellie Brosh McKenna, who did our favorite morning glory but is actually famous for the crazy ex-girlfriend so this is a movie about a young journalist also fresh out of northwestern uh the bait to prestigious but not too prestigious colleges in this category is fantastic it's like we need it to be like really prestigious but like not like harvard no one will believe it i love this description on imdb a smart but sensible new graduate smart but sensible Smart but sensible new graduate lands a job as an assistant to Miranda Priestly, right. the demanding editor-in-chief of a high fashion magazine. Yes, which is runway in the movie, but the similarities to Anna Wintour and Vogue are very identifiable. Absolutely. I don't think it's really trying that hard to not be an exact parallel to that. As you said, and as Cassie said, it's definitely like a you're lucky to be here job, but it is a total eat shit job, too. How many times does a character in this movie use or mock using the fr- the phrase, a million girls would kill to be here? Right. Six? Yeah, at least six. It's a lot. And there's a lot of, like, good Stanley Tucci myth-making in this one as well. <laughs> you mean myth-making for the actor, Tucci? Well, I would say both. I mean, I think this is an iconic Tucci performance that... Yeah. You know, on his, if they show a scene of him acting like in his in memoriam in 30 years or whatever, like it will definitely be him consoling Anne Hathaway in this movie. And sets the stage for him to be so goddamn wonderful as Julia Child's husband in the Julie and Julia movie with Meryl coming in a couple years. The Tooch is great. Um, Yeah. But I think he also makes a lot of myths in the scenes where he's talking about like how important fashion is to people and even framing it as being a collective where marginalized people have like found their voice, which is sort of an interesting place to come from, but then be so complicit in a lot of like really abusive behavior to keep this institution intact. Totally. I think this movie actually marks a really interesting turning point in Meryl's career. Cause it kind of like re repopularize or turns her into pop again like she's been a very famous famous person for the preceding 30 years and been nominated for you know more oscars than an octopus could carry but um nice reference i don't wasn't really a reference it was just an idea was it more than eight (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it's like 14 (laughs) Uh, incredible there's more oscars than one and a half octopi could carry but she's coming off of some like adaptation and music of the heart and sort of like either very cool and interesting or like not very seen prestige movies and then right after this it's uh mama mia and into like 
August Osage County and this idea that like Meryl's the best, like we let her cook, we let her have fun. It's complicated. This this is like a real turning point where it's like, oh yeah, popcorn Meryl. We love this. But that didn't exist yeah. before her performance in this movie for her, I don't think. That is interesting. Yeah, she really is in everything of the past of of note really in the past. She just like turns up, like she's in Into the Woods. Yes. You know, she just sort of like turns up in these movies. You know, even Little Women, she's like in that in a bit part. I had such a fun time realizing that this, there are now two movies where uh, one young woman thinks she's going to Paris with Meryl Streep, but then it's the other young woman. (laughs) That's really funny. And she's in like fucking Mary Poppins Returns for crying out loud. Yeah. She's just but then like, also plays like Kay Graham in the post. Like, right. Nothing is out of reach. But I think but I think Kay Graham is more in the um Miranda Priestley style of acting. She's just like an elder stateswoman. The ticks of what is otherwise like a the ticks of the performance are very showy. Doesn't make it bad, but like everything she does now is bathed in her own greatness. I think this is the beginning of that self-consciousness. Oh, wow. This is the, the the baptism, so to speak, of our uh, of late stage Meryl Streep into the Academy. That's right. Wow, I love uh, it. Yeah, um, I think she's absolutely wonderful in this movie and makes a total monster seem pretty sympathetic. Yes. Yeah. Is, is her performance arguably too good? Um, yeah, it's too good, Meryl. You're yeah. a chameleon. Yeah. Do we need to do any more synopsis about like what happens in here? And Andrea's got this very interesting. Uh, relationship with Emily Blunt, who's playing a woman named Emily, who really great wants... Blunt, love it's Emily Blunt. In this great Blunt, um, I love her delivery of no, I shan't. Um, but she, oh, she shan't. I think I said that out loud after she said it. <laughs> it's just funny though. the The thing that about two thousand six fashion is like because a third of this movie is devoted to them being like. Andrea, you dress like shit. You need to dress like us. But all the high fashion from 2006 looks awful. Well, this movie has so many strange moving parts. Maybe that's why it's kind of hard to talk about the plot of it as it goes on without just like walking through every beat of the movie. Sure. Because on one hand, it's propped up by fashion porn, yeah. which ages very badly, I would say, in probably you know, any era. In the, 15 years since this movie was shot yeah um and it also like it doesn't it it bases a lot of its humor on like oh andy's a fat six like she'll never fit in any of these clothes and it like doesn't really check those jokes it just kind of makes them and has like famous people make them so you think they're cool but never really like walks them back in a meaningful way that's a good which point. is so interesting that it never like and there's open talk of eating disorder behavior and that is never really addressed totally so it's propped up on humor like that and then it's this weird sort of trying to be progressive story about a woman finding her way in the world and the relationship that may or may not hold her back and whether true love is more important than finding the dream job. And it really just like kind of, I think the ending is kind of bobbled. Adrian Grenier from Entourage plays the boyfriend. And I think part of why you really want Andrea to grow past that is because like, 
the performance just sucks and the character just sucks. So it's easy. There to... was always a, yeah, there's always a time limit on Vinny Chase. Anyway, he was never going to go. <laughs> Very easy to like want her actually to go back to Miranda Priestly because that relationship dynamic is so much more interesting. It's interesting how Adrian Grenier like never did take off as an actor. He's very he never handsome. really had his his Aquaman. He never had his Aquaman. Is that a well in the show Entourage? Like his big oh. breakout thing is he's directed in James Cameron's Aquaman. That's right. My bad. There are some really interesting things about that show otherwise marred by the blatant sexism and myth-making we're talking about on this very podcast. That's right, that's right. I want to go back to one of the best parts of this movie, and it's just delivered in the perfect Meryl tonality, is the speech about the cerulean sweater. You go to your closet, and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Almost feels it like it's speech. written like for a different movie though. Or like that's something that somebody thought of independently of this script, the, this plot. You know what I mean? It like stands out so much. It's like somebody and had I that thought. I think it shows the stakes of fashion. Yeah. And it makes sense that that is the kind of framework that a movie like this has passed on. And the idea of like the reason these people behave this way is because they believe in this system. And they believe the system works because it works for them specifically. Yeah. And they don't seem to know how to break out of it. So like, while it's sort of a mesmerizing thing to realize that the reason, you know, she bought this sweater at Old Navy was because of a designer four years earlier and people copying him and the color being passed along. While that's sort of entertaining to hear, like watching it now, it's just sort of like a, you're just so chained to this thing. Like what you're talking about is... Is that the way that you think people should get clothing and like the way that perhaps like consumer fashion is going to play out over the next 15 years? I don't know. I don't know either. As someone who would absolutely fall prey to like that way of thinking though, of like, oh, this. Oh yeah, that sounded great. I want to be, I want to be in fashion by the end of this movie. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) No, I mean that maybe I feel like that speech hits me extra hard because I would go by the thing on the rack that's like oh, this is so understated and it's clearly like nice, but let's, you know, that I didn't like think about it. I think that I would, I would be very open to such a dressing down, I think. For sure. You've seen me. You know I would. I think you dress fine. Even right now. Since you've taken off that train conductor's hat. Should we talk about each other's college fashion? Is it that time in the podcast? 
I haven't altered at all. So if you have any critiques, I wish you'd do it off air. Still wearing ironic concert shirts that you would have worn at the time. I'm wearing Um, my Yanni shirt right now. Did you see this? Is this movie enjoyable? Is Simon Baker enjoyable? Is The Mentalist enjoyable? What do you feel about Simon Baker? I think he's a pretty unsavory individual. I feel... (laughs) How about as an on-screen persona? I same thing. That's I what I feel about Simon Baker. That's really Baker, the context in which I know Simon Baker. What I feel about Simon Baker is that uh his eyebrows have been dyed slightly darker in other roles and uh Ooh. and in this one it's like a little disturbing the first time you see him. Cuz he's a I can't say that I have the recall on Simon Baker's face that you do chance. Dastardly handsome man lacking in uh pigment. Are you saying that his eyebrows don't match in this movie how they look on the background of your cell phone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you drooled a little on that one. That I was great. I didn't drool. No, I saw it. There was I saw saliva fall out of your mouth. Well, I think that yeah, that's the problem. There's an Im- there's a real imbalance in charm in this movie where like Oh, for sure. I jump off a catwalk for Tucci. Um but here's this guy who's like supposed to sort of like ooze a certain appeal and it's just too much ooze and not enough appeal. And it's yeah. like, well, so you feel that this guy doesn't respect her, but then ultimately, I don't know, their get together, the betrayal is not seen really of her boyfriend or of his position in the industry. It's seen that he was doing something behind her back that hurt her boss, who she now has Stockholm syndrome to. She does have Stockholm Syndrome. Well, that's the thing. Is this movie saying that this young woman has Stockholm Syndrome for her Anna Wintour-like boss? Or is the movie saying she needed to go through this metamorphosis in order to be the butterfly that, as a working woman, she will be? Great point. And I think one of the problems with the movie, not in like a, is it fun way, but like a, does it hold up on a deeper level, is it doesn't let... Andrea answer that question a plot contrivance answers the question which is that Miranda Priestly gives her the favorable job review in the end which any real world monster boss would never give you they would fuck you over right and so you don't actually know how Andrea feels about herself or about the situation because she doesn't have to she did get what she wanted out of it it tries to be like both a sex in the city kind of movie but also a richer Nora Ephron kind of working girl commentary. And it doesn't, I don't think it's able to juggle those, those things. It can't walk and chew gum at the same time. I also watched for totally the fun of it, watched working girl this weekend. Nice. Really good movie. Um, that, uh, is far better than devil wears Prada, which I think I'm going to call, I've seen it twice. I'd, I'd never seen it before, like, last year. Now I've seen it twice. And I think it's bad good. I think the things that are, like, entertaining about it and Meryl's performance are larger than life wonderful. But there's just, like, so much about the movie that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I think, yeah, on a narrative level and also in a 2020 smell test level, this is definitely a bad good. Uh a lot of fun to watch, a lot of fun to see like New York too at this specific time and feel like you're a an insider in Fashion Week in Paris. And there's something glamorous about this movie and how it 
you know, it has all these great montages of like magazines getting read and it was just like a different time to be alive. It was, that's sort yeah. of, if I were ever to, it, when I, when people say like the, like the nostalgia thing, I think it's really encapsulated in this movie, how seductive that can be. You want to talk about a much, much weirder movie? I don't know that I like want to talk about 2002 secretary but since we picked it and i haven't watched any other movie that falls into this category (laughs) let's try to parse it this movie is directed by someone i had never heard of named steven shaneberg who had made some movies in the 90s like the prom angela and Varel, alice and Varel, and hit me um i think sort of uh yeah, like subcultural indies in this vein. It's just like, strange that this one broke out. I feel like him and like Roger Cumble, the director of Cruel Intentions, and like Roger Avery when he gets out of prison, like maybe all hang out. Like they wish they were Soderbergh or Tarantino, but they're just like kind of making weird BDSM movies. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this movie as we said, wins the special jury prize at Sundance and is the true breakout for Maggie Gyllenhaal, who had been, she had the smaller part in Donnie Darko like a year before, but she gets a Golden Globe nom for this movie in which she plays a woman with a mental illness who is, when we first meet her, getting out of an institution, um, presumably for self-harm, and lives with her parents in this utterly blank mediocre suburban existence this is like in one florida, of the most like north florida this is sidebar one of the most post 9-11 movies i've ever seen it really reminds me of like one hour photo just this idea oh, yeah of same year incredible like the suburban ennui of say like American Beauty, which is so passe, like two years later, much le- much less twenty, has been replaced by just like everyone is a monster. Life is without meaning. Like this just sucks so much. Right, and that's kind of the backdrop of Secretary. It's interesting to note too that Secretary was shot just at the moment where a movie like this would no longer be shot on film, but instead on digital. And it's shot on film and you can almost like feel the difference of it. It like looks like an older movie than just 18 years, which I think is interesting. Also to see uh, James Spader with hair. uh, It really just like is the carbon footprint of uh, when this movie was made or the carbon data of uh, when this movie was made. Yeah, it's not the less than zero hair, but it's the Boston legal hair is what it is. It's the Boston legal hair. It's the practice <laughs> leading into Boston legal hair. Yeah. Julian, I, I don't want to trust you. I just want my 50K. Oh, man. He's, He's so incredible in, in that zero. movie. Yeah. And otherwise, not that great movie. Um, But yeah, boy, has he come a long so, way since Sex, Lies, and Videotape, though. But this movie is like definitely in the Sundance vein. Someone was like, I've seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Let's get Spader for like a weird other movie about like what him playing the ultimate mom weirdo with something strange that turns him on. 
I have never had a job before, but I can assure you that I am very excited about this opportunity. All I need is a typist who can answer the phone. You have reached the office of Mr. Edward Gray. <laughs> it's very dull work. I like dull work. I'm not here. How'd it go? I got it. Letter has three typing errors in it. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm. Type it again. This needs more sugar. Six copies of these. What is wrong with you? You can get a much bigger voice out of that tiny throat. This is the office of Mr. E. Edward Craig. <laughs> This is the big problem I have with this movie that becomes blatantly apparent from moments in is that this is not a movie about a problem. It's not it, it's not a movie that's going to judge too heavily a problematic power dynamic, nor does it no. intend to be an indictment of people abusing power. You have to leave everything you learn from watching the assistant at the door to even attempt to enjoy this movie. Hundred um, percent. Let me just say real quick that so the character of Lee, in an effort to leave the mediocre suburban house that her sister has, she's just gotten married, but now they're like living in the pool house, and dad's a drunk, and mom has nothing to do and is totally codependent. Um, Lee is takes back to cutting and burning and stuff, but realizes let me get a job to at least channel my energy some sort of way and ends up working for E. Edward Gray. And uh, boy, if you think you're the first one to make a Christian Gray joke in a review of this movie, you are not. Um, <laughs> that was no to me and to you. Um, well, this movie came first, of, though. Uh, yes, of course. But what kind of law E. Edward Gray practices is a hilarious question to me. What Any work gets done in that law office, I don't know. Well, I thought at first that the law firm was sort of a ruse, that like maybe it turned out that this guy was just turned on by like quote unquote hiring secretaries and that he wasn't actually like a practicing attorney. That would make, make way more sense. That would make way more sense. But he is in fact a practicing attorney. Uh and clients do like occasionally pop in. Cause one of the super creepy, totally unbelievable things about his like goofy little single practitioner office is that he has a, you know, the, the dangling chain le- like light that says like secretary applicant wanted like below his own name where you flip a switch and it like illuminates, which is, Right. Very creepy. It's very but creepy, it's but it implies like, the fact that he needs a new secretary almost every day the way a hotel needs new people to stay there. Yeah. Okay, but let's return to your point, because it's one of the main points about this movie. I think, and a lot of the positive reviews of this movie point this out, that this is sort of an unlikely, in some ways, tender, like supposed to be finding the good... Uh, in an S&M relationship, which right. had been uh, groundbreaking at the time. And it's still like you watch it and you're like, oh, you really don't see this relationship dynamic on screen work out on a personal level where two people are happy. This is really different. Um, but it is mind boggling that the movie does not realize that it is set at work and what is happening is just hyperbolic sexual harassment on every level. 
it, that's what's so troubling about it is that like all his advances, like thank God she's into them by the end of yeah. it at least, because otherwise he, I mean, he is a predator. But then what's yeah. what's tough about this movie too is that because of things like having the light bulb system and having these like these Polaroid photos of recent previous secretaries too, it makes it yeah. seem like a pattern and that's what I think I find more problematic than like two people unlocking these urges that they have just with each other. It's not a movie yeah. like that. It's a guy who serially uses a work position to abuse women into testing whether or not they'd be a good dom for him. And if not, he fires them. sub for him or a good sub for him. And yeah, he fires them if they're not. And what you're saying, of course, then sent me back to be like, I have to find anything I can about how this movie was made. Because it, yeah. of course, raises that dynamic of like, how w- how comfortable or not was Maggie Gyllenhaal, a you know, 24-year-old actor in her first starring role, on this set? Um, and I found a really interesting video where she's like doing one of those things for Vanity Fair or GQ or someone where it's like my career timeline. And she talks about there's a scene which critically is the second bend over the desk like spanking scene What's where the they first? lock there's two of them in this movie yes oh i thought you meant that they were like two famous ones in history and i was like well, what's the other one <laughs> maggie talks about locking hands and fingers with james spader in the second desk scene and having conversations with spader and shaneberg about finding that moment with the camera because This is her being like, my character must suggest consent, which I think is a very telling dynamic because it is the prominent woman on set, like having a a creative voice and finding a moment that like the men were not thinking about, but that's so late into the movie. And it's exactly what you said. It's like, it's a totally confused movie because you can feel that a woman's interests are sprinkled in at some point. Like someone cared about what she thought, but it's not part of the skeleton of the story. Right. The, I mean, the, the plot of this movie is that a uh, rich white guy preys on woman just out of mental institution after a suicide attempt for his own sexual gratification. How do, can we actually, here's a thought experiment I really haven't thought about, but let's see. In Sex, Lies, and Videotape, James Spader is posited as a sexually adventurous liberator for the Andy McDowell character who is sexually frustrated and is also dating a, you know, a partner who, who doesn't care about her. But of course the, first of all, the notion that uh, Sandy Cohen couldn't satisfy her on every level is, is blasphemous. What, it makes you want to raise a pretty bushy eyebrow? My God, Peter Gallagher. But that movie... Yeah. No, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, though, it feels more like there is consent there. Like, the Andy McDowell character is not uneven to James Spader. If anything, like, James Spader's portrayed as, like, the sort of ne'er-do-well. Well, yeah, and of course, every... Actually, if you think about it, Sexually frustrated women consenting is the turn on. Right, exactly. Because committing their true selves to videotape is like the biggest act of consent. That they do it is what turns them on. 
Yeah. But in this one, what turns him on is the abusive power dynamic, which (laughs) I think hints that the last 10 minutes of this movie are absolutely nuts because it implies that this monster would ever be satisfied. If there is any way to dispense with political misgivings for a second. Oh, God. Could you on any level enjoy the like the weird kind of stickler comedy of Spader and Gyllenhaal. I mean, I have to, I get why people thought this was her considered it her breakout role because she is giving everything. Oh yeah. She'll do anything in this movie. He has like moments that are certainly striking. Like he is just like Miranda Priestly. His voice seldom raises above a whisper. Um, everything he like, says it's is very so dull wet work. It's it's like that, but it's also wet. Like, please put an example of his voice in the in the podcast here, Chance, so you can just hear like how slimy his like his voice is. Ugh. That's a way to put it. I'm going to tell you something, Lee. Are you ready to listen? Yes. Are you listening? You will never, ever. Cut yourself again. Do you understand? If this movie were released today, all the prints would be burned and <laughs> everyone would be killed. Oh no. The blacklist would be <laughs> taken would off be the air. Killed. Everyone would be put on the blacklist. I think this movie is super hard to watch because of its very weird feelings about how charming this all this whole thing is and it's like has this set design that's kind of it's also very creepy it's it's a well-made movie in like a technical sense i think in a very early 2000s indie cinema sort of way uh yeah thought and care and creativity is put into like some of the motions and the setting like that office is so weird but it does stand out like how green and intricately designed it is compared to the cardboard of the rest of the world but like this is the the column from your college newspaper you hope never re-emerges kind of thing (laughs) yes um i think this movie's bad a bad bad i think that this movie maybe it's a good bad you want to give it a bad bad. Just go ahead. I'll give it a good bad. You can give it a bad bad. I think it may be a bad bad. I mean, technically, sure, it's fine, but it's just so distracting by like what its bones are. And its bones are like a weird fetish. Like it, It's not even like celebrating the fetish of Sub and Dom and that power dynamic there. It's like making it really dirty and not that sexy of a way. Like I was horrified by the the slapping on the butt and then her going into the bathroom to observe. She has a huge bruise like all over her, her ass. Like why? That's not, is it, that's not sexy to me. And I feel like this movie thinks that it's sexy. Well, I don't know if that's of, that's the fair critical ground to stand on. It's that like it, it should go further into like a subculture that it wants to embrace, sure. but it's actually the it's the normalization of BDSM behavior through the very boring, very standard boss secretary dynamic that makes it so troubling. I actually wanted to say that I did look up though. I another thing I was deeply suspicious of about this movie is this idea 
the impulses to self-harm could transfer yes. to a BDSM relationship. I was I was like, no fucking way. That's so problematic. And then I went on this crazy rabbit hole of reading about this on the internet. And there actually is like precedent in people's personal lives for like, this is a BDSM is a form of harm reduction that goes from, you know, masochism through pain and self-hatred to masochism for pleasure. Um, and wild that this movie could get that right maybe so i don't know point for i think something. it's so concerned with that aspect of it being authentic that it totally forgets about like the workplace dynamic question at play here which is what you said at the top yeah i think it's just um, it's not aware of that it knows that it hangs on that and it thinks that that's clever because it hasn't thought of no one's thought of that before but like a people have and b to this extreme is just with that wet voice of James Spader, too. You ever seen the that Verhoeven movie from 2015, L? Oh, the one where she like gets revenge on her rapist. Well, she, as a form of revenge, gets her rapist to re-role play the rape and enters a relationship with him. Oh man. I think, yeah, you're making the face that film critics made at the time. Um, but, like, even that movie, I mean, like, good God, like, Verhoeven movies are so provocative and challenging. I feel like even as that premise is so much maybe more disturbing, again, there's not, like, I think a lot where these latter two movies both fail as far apart as they are is that they don't, they don't let the characters answer the questions of morality in like very interesting or convincing or very human ways. It just goes from like James Spader has all the power, you know, beats her, Let's... spanks her, dominates her. And then at the end, she's just like, oh, actually, I have some power to do this. But it's not a balance. It also feels like this movie is more interested in James Spader than it is in Maggie Gyllenhaal. Ultimately, I mean, she's our the way we're seeing this movie, but the story we're hearing is about him and how he was like turned from a beast into a, a normal human by her, the power of her love. And ultimately like that was her role in all of this was to save him. But like, that's about his redemption, not hers. She's like, mm -hmm. she never quite recovers from whatever the initial pain is. In my opinion, it's just exploited. Mm. Sure. Well, fuck. Here we are. At the <laughs> I think that is the right send off to this particular category. Can we just treat our assistants with some respect? Pay them a living wage? Pay them a living wage, give them health care. Um don't congratulate them on successes in the same breath with telling them to like go retrieve a beverage for you. Yeah, and think of the things that like are unreasonable. And, like, above all, like, give lessons and don't just, like, haze people. I feel like there's so much hazing in all of these movies. True. Where it's, like, you have to go through this certain painful thing in order to fit in here. And it's, like, why? Why is that a place where we want to work? Get your own fucking coffee. Thanks for listening, everyone. Noah, any, any last words, buddy? I think I what I said just now was brilliant. <laughs> Bye, then. Working out to buy